before we go to God's Word today, let me just say to all of you moms out there, Happy Mother's Day. Can we celebrate our moms today? It's kind of like that one day of the year where we get to just kind of shine the spotlight and celebrate moms a little bit here at New Life and kind of help us do that. You probably saw when you came in here today, did you see the chocolate fountains out there in the atrium? We did that last year, and it was such a big hit. When it came around, I said, what do we want to do for moms? And like, we're all like chocolate. You know, that, let's do that again. That would seem like a big hit. So you guys enjoy. It's for everybody, of course, but we're doing it in honor of moms. And I know some of you had family with you today, and, and Mother's Day is very special because all the kids are here, and you take pictures. We, we have out in the atrium, too, that, that colorful backdrop. If you want to take pictures in front of there, make a special memory. There's little signs you can hold that's all about Mother's Day. And if you want to throw those up on social media and tag the church, we would not we would not be disappointed if he did that, okay? And so, but that's what that's for. Um, we just want to celebrate moms. But you know, at the same time, I think you probably nod your head and say, sometimes Mother Day is, can be a hard day for a lot of moms too, doesn't it? A lot of emotions wrapped up in this day. And, and not, we're not lost on that either. And so I want us to pray together. Let's just pray to God. Let's thank God for moms. But let's also talk to God a little bit just about this whole day in general. And let's just ask God's peace and blessing to be on it. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful, Lord, the way you designed the way that life comes into being is through mothers, and you've given them that special role, and we're all here today because of a mom, and we're just thankful, Lord, for, for you giving us moms. And, but Lord, even at the same time, we pray that this day, out of any other day, is also a reminder, too, of things that maybe aren't so well, things that um, used to be whole but are broken. It's, it's a reminder, too, of loss, and it's a reminder, too, of a lot of things. But, Lord, uh, we just pray and acknowledge today that uh, our hope and trust is in you, that, Lord, we draw our strength and our joy and our peace from you. And so, Lord, wherever the sources of that joy comes from, ultimately we know that our faith and hope and trust is solely on you, and we pray, God, that you get all the glory today. Lord, help us now as we open up your word. Lord, teach us what we need to hear today, Lord. Help us to see you in a new way and to see ourselves as well in light of Scripture and in light of how you see us, Lord. Help us to become everything you want us to be, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, here's something that I believe to be true about the majority of us in this room today. I know it's true for me. I think it's true for you. Who in here does not love a good underdog story? I mean, I love underdog stories. I mean, you, you know what I mean when I say underdog, right? I mean, somebody who was kind of dealt a bad hand in life, but they overcame and was successful anyway. Underdog stories are about those people who started, you know, at the end of the pack, but they finished at the head of the pack. Underdog stories are incredible. Some of my favorite movies ever made we're all about underdogs. You ever heard of the little movie called The Hoosiers? I mean, it's the little school from Indiana that nobody gave any thought that they would ever amount to anything, but they went on to win the state championship. Great movie if you haven't seen it. How about the movie Rocky? Remember that one? Not just the first one, all 112 of them, you know, okay? Rock, we love them. Who would have thought that, that this Southpaw from Philly could ever go the distance with Apollo Creed? But he did. How about this, one of my favorite movies, Rudy. You like that one? 
I mean, Rudy, I mean, how do you not like Rudy? I mean, he's a kid who had no athletic ability. Everybody said he wasn't smart enough and, and he'll never go to college, didn't come from the right kind of family. But he ended up going to Notre Dame and he even got on the football team and got in the game. I mean, who doesn't love an underdog? I'll tell you, one of my all-time favorite underdog stories is of a young man named Jason McElwain. Does that name ring a bell? It might after I tell you about him. He was a student at Greece Athena High School in Greece, New York, and in my opinion, in 2006, he gave the world one of its greatest sports moments ever. It still stands up in my mind as one of the greatest moments in sports. See, Jason, um, he has autism. And uh, he was the manager for the high school varsity uh, basketball team. And he was very dedicated to the team. He was an encourager, but he didn't play himself. And, and his dad gave an interview one time, and he said, you know, you know, I'm worried about Jason because he gets so passionate about the game, so involved, I'm always worried that the referee is going to turn around and give him a technical foul, and he's not even a player. Very passionate. Well, the last game, the last home game of the season, the coach wanted to reward Jason for all of his dedication. And so he allowed Jason to, to, uh, to put on a jersey and warm up with the team and sit on the bench just as a reward. He wanted him to know at least one time in his life what that felt like. But the coach would say, I had no intentions of actually letting him play. I just wanted him to experience it. Well, it was the fourth quarter, and there was four minutes and 19 seconds left in the game, to be exact, and their team was way ahead in the score, and the coach looked down the bench, and he thought, why not? And he said, Jason, you're in. I'm telling you, nobody expected, I mean, nobody expected what was about to happen. Because in that four minutes and 19 seconds, Jason would score 20 points. 20 points, and they weren't gimmies, they were contested. And 18 of those 20 points came by three-pointers, six in a row to be exact. And when the final, and listen, if you have not watched this on YouTube, you need to go and write this name down, Jason McElwain, and uh, YouTube that, and you'll bring a tear to your eye, okay? But when the final buzzer blew, the whole school rushed the floor, and they hoisted Jason up on their shoulders and kind of giving him a hero's welcome. And I'll tell you, this went all over the news the next day. It was, it was viral instantly. Later that year, Jason would be given an ESPY award for the greatest sports moment of the year. And that's no little thing, because you know who else was up for that award that year? Colby Bryant. And you know why he was up for that award? Because that season, Colby had scored 81 points in one game. And they said, that's got to be the greatest sports moment of the year. But it was not better than Jason's. And Jason won. Jason today still does some motivational speaking, and he wrote a book a few years ago called The Game of My Life. Don't you love a good underdog story? Doesn't there something about it that just resonates with us? The least likely of persons to come out on top. Did you also know that the Bible is chocked full of underdog stories? Did you know that? 
Stories of people who you read about their lives and you can't help but notice that they are the least likely of people in all the Bible to, to accomplish the great things that God had them to do. In fact, if you were to just start listing off names of people in the Bible that you know, there's a really good chance that that person started as an underdog. They were people who had to overcome challenges. They were people who had to climb over obstacles. They are people that probably had to get beyond their own own excuses to be used by God in powerful ways, and in powerful ways they were used. So today, uh, we are starting a brand new series that I'm simply calling God of the Underdogs. This is a theme that has been rolling around inside this noggin of mine ever since we were studying through the story together. How many of you are here for the story where for 31 weeks we studied through the entire Bible together? And you probably will recall that we came across a lot of names and a lot of situations and we studied about them, but because of the pace of the series, we just didn't have the time to really lock in and unpack and pull out all of these underdog stories. And so ever since we finished that series, in my mind I'm going, I wanna go back and I wanna really dig into a couple of these people's lives because they were the least likely of people. But yet God used them to do incredible things. So we're doing that now. We're going back and we're gonna unpack some of these lives. And I think many of you are going to relate really well to this series. I think you're gonna connect on a deeper level with some of these underdogs than you ever thought you would because probably, if I had to guess, there's a good number of us in this room today that have some feelings of being an underdog yourself. Perhaps you've even allowed yourself to make some very common underdog excuses. We see these excuses in the Bible. We'll look at some, but maybe you've said them yourself. Here's an underdog excuse. I started out behind, and I seem to have stayed behind my whole life. That's an underdog excuse. How about this? I'm not good enough. I don't have enough. I don't know enough. I don't have the right training. Certainly somebody else is more qualified than me to do that thing for God. I don't have all that much going right in my life right now, or I've had too much go wrong. There are more people they could do a much better job than me. That's an underdog excuse. Maybe this one, maybe this has come out of your mouth. You know, I'm past my prime. I'm too broken. Hey, I haven't fully recovered yet. It's not quite time. Or I've stocked up too many failures. I mean, the list could go on and on. These are underdog excuses of people who said, I'm, I'm behind and God couldn't use me and, and I'm not the guy, I'm not the gal for, for this. If you go through the Bible and read the stories of everyone God used in big ways, you could easily draw the conclusion they started as an underdog, but God still used them to do great things. I think that you're going to see some people in the Bible that perhaps you've heard their names, and some of these names are people you're going to be introduced to for the very first time. But I think as we study about their lives and we explore all that God did through them, I think you're going to connect to them in a way you never thought was possible to connect to a story in the Bible. I believe that God is going to use what they went through and how he worked through them to really impact your lives. Let me tell you something. There is something inside of us that when we read the Bible, I don't know why we do this, but we go, ah, eh, that was then and this is now. God related to people differently back then than he does 
now. I think you're going to see some very realness in these stories. And I think you're going to walk away and go, that's not too different than what's going on inside of my heart right now. I feel that way too sometimes. I get that. I understand why that decision was made. I think you're going to connect to this in a really impactful way if you'll stay with us through this series. Well, when you think about unqualified underdogs in the Bible, I don't think you have to look any further than this one person. His name is David. Now, yeah, it is that David. It's the David who would go on to become the greatest king in Israel's history. Certainly he had his flaws, and we've spent plenty of time, you know, studying about his flaws, but he also had a huge heart for God. He was called a man after God's own heart. He was certainly that. But before any of that, he was one of the biggest underdogs in the Bible. Before he was the king, he was kind of a nobody. And I can promise you that nobody in David's young life ever looked at him and said, that guy has all the makings of a future king. That came out of nobody's mouths. I heard it said one time that uh, as a young man, David was a whole lot of nothing special. And you know, we can kind of see that conclusion when we are introduced to him for the very first time in the Bible. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to spend our entire morning in that chapter. 1 Samuel 16. There are Bibles in the rows in front of you if you didn't bring one. And of course, we'll have the scriptures presented on the screens behind me to follow along. But 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to be. And now while you are finding that, let me just give you a little bit of context of what's going on in the world. And I think this will kind of help you understand that David came onto the scene as a massive underdog that nobody thought was ever going to amount to anything. This is a part of David's life that doesn't get a lot of focus in preaching, in my opinion. We, we, there's plenty of other parts that get all the spotlights, but this part, his early life, when we first meet him, doesn't seem to get a lot of attention. It's, it's parts of his life that we would probably say we know less about, just as, just as, as you go through studying the Bible. But in this day... You know, that Israel is God's chosen people. God rescued them out of slavery. They crossed the Red Sea on dry land, and, um, and they entered into the Promised Land. Now, those of you that know your Bible history, you know I'm just blowing through the history really fast. There's a lot of things that happened. But they go into the Promised Land, and they establish themselves, and they go through about 300 years that we understand as the time of the judges. This is when God raised up certain individuals to lead God's people. They were connected to God, and they did His will, and, 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 it, was, and it was good for the most part. They had their downs for sure, but it was a time of the judges, and that lasted about 300 years. But then the people of Israel, they began to look around at all the other nations around them, and they drew this conclusion. All the other nations, they have kings, and we want a king. We don't want these judges. We want a king to rule over us. And God was like, you don't need a king. You know why God said they don't need a king? Because he was their king. Remember, God always wanted this relationship with the Israelites. I will be your God, and you will be my people. What do you need a king for? I'm your God. But they're like, no, we want, we want a God. And so they cried out to the prophet Samuel, give us a king. And God tried to talk him out of it. Hey, this, this king is not going to turn out the way you think. He is going to oppress you. He is going to make your lives miserable. And like, we don't care. Give us a king. Look at all the other nations. We want what they got. You know, I'll tell you right there, people haven't changed. 
We want what they got. And all the advice in the world would not talk them out of it. So God finally relented and he said, okay, you can have a king, but it will not work out like you think. And so they picked their king. Do you remember the name of the first king of Israel? It was King Saul. And Saul looked the part. I mean, he, the Bible described him as a man that stood head and shoulders. I mean, all the people in Israel said, now that's what a king looks like. The problem was Saul, he looked the part, but he didn't have the heart for the part. His heart was far. It started out okay. I mean, you can read about victories and things like that, but eventually Saul's heart drew the people away from God. Now, like I said, there's a lot of history there. You need to go back and read it all. But eventually God said, Saul, you're not going to be my king anymore. No, sorry, Saul, you lost your place. And so God pulled his blessing off of Saul, and he said, I'm going to do something brand new. I'm going to do uh, there's something else completely. Saul cannot lead my people. And so he said, Samuel, Samuel's the prophet. Samuel was the last judge. He's a transitional figure. He's also a prophet. And Samuel, I want you to rise up, and I want you to go and anoint a new king. You got verse 1 of, of 1 Samuel 16? The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be the king. We don't get the impression that Samuel is all that excited about this new assignment. I mean, when God um, talks to him, he says, Samuel, how long are you going to keep moaning and mourning over Saul? I mean, we kind of get this impression that, that Samuel's just sad and he's kind of moping around the house. And God's like, Samuel, enough of that. I've rejected Saul. It's time to move on. Fill up your horn with oil. Head over to Bethlehem. I want you to anoint a new king. That job fell to Samuel. It was his role, and this is how they did it back then. The prophet would fill up his horn with oil, and when God appointed or showed him, this is who I'm choosing, the prophet would pour the oil on top of that person's head. That's how they did it back then. I don't understand it completely. That's not how we choose leaders today, but that's how they did it back then. But then Samuel, he offers up this very strange excuse. Now, we don't, we're not used to these kind of excuses from God's guys like this. But he says this in verse 2. How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Let me paraphrase, if you will let me, what I think Samuel's trying to say to God. He's saying, hey God, I can't do it. I know you want me to, but I don't think I can do it. We already have a king. His name is Saul. And I know that you pulled your blessing and you've rejected him, but the people still see him as a king and he's still acting as the king. And if I go behind his back and anoint another king while he's still king, he's going to kill me. I think that's what Samuel's trying to communicate. He's afraid. But God doesn't flinch. Look at the verse again, the second part of verse 2. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel, he does what the Lord says. He gathers him stuff. He heads off to Bethlehem, and he's going there to sacrifice for the Lord, and he is going to make sure that Jesse and his family shows up at this anointing service because they are, you know, the main attraction, if you will. Something special is going to happen in this family. Look at verse 4. Here's what happens next. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? 
Samuel replied, Yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Bethlehem is not a huge place at this time in history. If you were to visit Bethlehem today, you would get a completely different impression than what it was like in this day. Bethlehem is a small place. It's a small town. It's a, a place where everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business. Did you grow up in a town like that? Anybody grow up in a small place like that? This is Bethlehem. So when Samuel rolls into town, everybody knows it. There is a stir. What are you doing here? Samuel in Bethlehem, this can't be good, but it is good. And he says, we're here to sacrifice, bring everybody, and where's Jesse? Now, it almost kind of feels like that maybe Je uh, Samuel is bringing a little bit of revival to town. Now, go with me on this. I'm just kind of halfway joking when I say this, but it kind of has the feel that, that Samuel rides into town and he's like, we're going to have ourselves a little church. Where's the organ player in town? We need her. And where's the choir robes? Shake the dust off those. We're putting together a choir. I need some place to preach. Get the whole town here. We're going to have a little church. And then he sees Jesse and he slips Jesse some VIP passes. Hey, Jesse and your family, I want you to sit in the front row. Trust me. And so that's what happens. I can imagine Jesse running home and saying, Honey, get the boys. Bring them in. We're going to church tonight. Samuel's got a special invitation just for us. A few hours later, worship started. All the songs have been sung. Samuel has taught. They've sacrificed to the Lord. And now it's time for the anointing service. And it says this in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab, which is one of Jesse's boys, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Do you understand what Samuel's looking at? He's looking at this kid, Elab, and he sees the same thing that everybody saw in Saul. That guy looks the part. It's got to be him. And then we read verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Don't you love verse 7? Verse 7 has got to be on every top 10 list of everybody's favorite verse in the Bible. And you know why I love it so much? Because it gives me a glimpse into the heart and the mind of God. It gives me an idea of how God sees us. And God says, I don't look at the outside. That's what everybody looks at. I look at the inside. God's saying, I'm looking at what that person's made of. And I'm telling you, I love that verse. He says, Samuel, you're looking at the outside, and I don't want you to take that in consideration. You look at the inside. That's what I'm looking at. And that tells us a lot about our Heavenly Father, doesn't it? what's really important to him and what should really be important to each and every one of us. If you look at verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab, that's another son, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one. Then Jesse had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Seven. 
of his kids. You know, they're there to anoint the king. It's going to come from Jesse's family, but God's like, nope, next. Nope, next. Nope, next. This is like the American Idol of the Bible times. No, you're not going to Hollywood, Abinadab. Not you, okay? No, all seven boys go through, and none of them are qualified. None of them are deemed worthy for the job. And then Samuel asked Jesse in verse 11 what I think maybe is one of the more awkward questions in the Bible. He says, hey, Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Are these all the sons you have? And I I think it was a little bit awkward because, you know, here they are at this anointing service, and it's going to be about one of Jesse's kids. It's like Samuel saying to Jesse, is there any chance you've forgotten anybody? I mean, that's what he's saying. Is there anyone that should be here who's not? And then maybe you see Jesse, he's like, well, I do have this other boy. Um, He's my youngest, but we left him out in the fields to watch the sheep. And I'm telling you, I don't think Jesse's going to be nominated for the Father of the Year Award back then, okay? Well, I got this other kid. I, I, I think what, Jason, what Jesse was saying in that moment in front of the whole town is like, I never thought David would be considered. Never in my wildest dreams that I think David would be part of this consideration. He's the runt. He's the baby. Bottom line, Jesse didn't think that David mattered here. That's the bottom line. Why bring him in from the fields? It's not like he's the one that's going to get chosen. Every one of his brothers before him, more qualified. They looked the part. They had the pedigree. Everything pointed to them. So David's, his father was like, I just don't see why we should bother bringing him in too. David did, David's father did not see his potential does not seem that he believes that his son could be this. And then if you look at verse 11 again, there's the second part of verse 11. He says, there's the youngest, Jesse, he's tending sheep. And then Samuel said, sin for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. You talk about awkward. Everybody stand and we're going to wait. And so I I don't know for sure, but it kind of makes me feel like, or at least assume, that maybe at that moment Samuel knew that David was going to be the next king, and we will wait and we will stand for the king when he comes in. I don't know for sure, but it seems like that. We are going to, we are going to stand here until he arrives. You know, maybe some of you underdogs in this room today are hearing this, and you're saying to yourself, that's me too. That, that's me. David's story is my story. There's somebody in my life who certainly didn't think that I was good enough. And maybe that was a coach or a boss or another sibling or, or a friend who you thought was a friend. Maybe, maybe you're sitting there and go, that's me. Yep, I, I would have been the one that was left out in the field because nobody even took my name into consideration. I get that. I feel that. Maybe it's been your own voice that's been telling you that something like that your whole life. Maybe you've had your own underdog excuses and that has held you back 
from your God-given destiny that God wants you to do. And if that describes you, you need to know that you're not that all different from David's beginnings. The same David who would become king, who would change the world, started his journey as an underdog that nobody gave any consideration to. His father didn't even think enough about him to bring him to the ceremony for this circumstance. And if that resonates with you, and you're like, I've fought my whole life for people to believe in me, and I've been undervalued at every step of the way, I want you to know this, God values you greatly. He sees in you what others have failed to see in you. And you know why I can say that with confidence? It's because of verse seven. Because man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. God looks at who you are, and everyone else just sees what they see on the outside. And if that resonates with you, you've got something in common with David. If you look at the last part of verse 11, they stand there until he arrives. So they sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. David was the least likely candidate for the job. The epitome of an underdog except for this. God chose him and that's what made all the difference in the world. God chose him. Matt Keller is the name of a pastor who preaches at a church down in Florida. And a few years ago, he wrote a great little book about all the people that God used in the Bible that nobody thought ever had a chance of being used by God. They they are the, the underdogs. It's a good little book. And he says this in that book about underdogs, and I think it has a lot to say about us. He says, maybe you looked at yourself and thought, I'm not good enough or qualified enough. I graduated in the bottom half of my class or didn't graduate at all. Maybe you've always told yourself that you're not as pretty as your sister or you didn't go to the right university. Maybe your parents weren't proud of you. If so, this next statement is for you. And Keller says this, all the wrong stuff plus God's hand of anointing equals the right person for the job. And I love that. And I think he's right. All the wrong stuff plus God's hand of anointing equals the right person for the job. Listen, you may have felt like the underdog your entire life, but I'm telling you, you have permission right now to believe that you are God's right person for the job. Because I believe that's how God sees us. I believe that there is more to this underdog thing than meets the eye. Something, in my opinion, is holding the church back today. Something is holding the majority of Christians back from becoming all that God intends for their lives, all that God has equipped us to become, powered by the Holy Spirit. Something is holding us back. And I just wonder, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if it doesn't have something to do with this underdog thing. God wants us to courageously pursue the lost. But the majority of Christians, in our country at least, don't do that. Why? There's a world full of hurting people, um, broken, desperate. And we have the answer, but we we, we often keep it to ourselves. 
I think there's plenty of people right here in our own community that in spiritual sense are wandering, wandering around aimlessly, pursuing all the things that they think they need to be happy and to have a whole life. But they're missing what they need the most, which is Jesus. And we're holding the answer right here at 103 Reardon Road, Bella Vista, Arkansas, 72715. <laughs> I believe God is calling all the underdogs in this church to rise up with a message of hope in Jesus Christ that has the power to change the world. What's holding us back from doing that? Here you have this young underdog named David who would become the next king of Israel. And do you know what the very next thing we read in the Bible after he gets anointed as the future king? We read about this little incident involving David and this giant named Goliath. Heard of him? David went out on that day to deliver sandwiches to his brothers who were in the army, but he would come home a hero. And you know why David was able to defeat the giant, this underdog that nobody ever gave any consideration to? Do you know why he walked out there and was able to defeat the giant? I'm gonna go back and give you the answer that Matt Keller gave because the way he wrote it, I think is perfect. He said, David was able to defeat the giant because he was armed with more than a slingshot and five smooth stones. He was armed with the power that comes from knowing God's hand was on him. And I wonder, do you walk about each and every day of your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, knowing that God's powerful hand is on you? And you are equipped, especially by God, to build up the church and to be a witness and to be uh, used by God to do great things. Do you realize that, that you may have started as an underdog, but God's hand is on you and he wants you to do great things more than you could probably ever imagine yourself. God's powerful hand is on you. It's the very reason why David was able to slay the giant. It wasn't because he was stronger than him, but God's hand was on David. And I believe God's hand, that same powerful hand, is on each and every person who believes in Jesus Christ. Powered by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've always counted yourself out. And whether you put words on it or not, you've always seen yourself as the underdog. But I want you to know you have permission to believe that it's you that God wants to use in powerful ways to change lives for Jesus. I hope you'll stay with this series. I believe God wants to show you some very significant things.